Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 24th, 2022, the Putin's War edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And we have a first-time GabFest guest. Jane Koston is the host of The Argument at the New York Times, the New York Times podcast. Jane, we're really excited to have you here. What is The Argument, and why are you always arguing? In actual life, I hate arguing, but that's generally because everyone has debate team energy, and I hate debate team energy. I believe we are conversing. That is what we are attempting to do. Whether it's on subjects as amorphous as patriotism or platforming or cancel culture in air quotes or also not in air quotes, or it's about what's taking place in Ukraine or should we contact aliens? And my answer was no. No, absolutely not. <laughs> this week on the GabFest, we will converse about the Russian war against Ukraine. We'll talk with Julia Yaffe about what is happening now and what could happen next. Then the conservative assault on LGBTQ kids and families from the Texas governor to the Arkansas legislature to the Supreme Court. What is going on? Then is technocracy a problem for Democrats or Democratic economists specifically too ethical? And is that hurting Joe Biden's presidency and the economy. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. As of Thursday morning, there appears to be a broad Russian attack against Ukraine as the 190,000 troops that Putin arrayed around its border have begun attacking from the north, east, and south, certainly by air and artillery. I Maybe by the time we're taping, there are already ground forces invading as well. It's a really there are dark moment. Forces. There are ground yeah. forces. That's Julia Yaffe, Sorry. the founding partner and Washington correspondent of Puck News, uh, who has been a GabFest regular and uh, knows knows what she, whereof she speaks. So, Julia, what are the different ways that Russia can go to war in Ukraine? There's a full scale. We're going to invade this and hold this country. And then there's the we're just uh, padding around its borders a little bit and, and doing uh, throwing some throwing some bombs at it. Well, as we're recording it, it looks like a pretty full-scale invasion, kind of blitzkrieg style. All those, you know, the nearly 200,000 forces that surrounded Ukraine on all sides, they went in from all sides. Uh, They've attacked by sea, by land, by air. They're shelling cities all over Ukraine, north to south, east to west. They're taking out air defense installations, take uh, bombing airports and trying to take them over. There were amphibious landing craft that landed in Odessa overnight with special forces that climbed up onto the shores of Odessa. It's full on. As for where this goes, I don't I don't think we know yet, but if you listen to Putin's speech declaring war, um, you know, he gave the speech right as his soldiers were going in at 4 a.m., local time. And 
he said he doesn't want to occupy Ukraine, but he also, what he said was Ukraine is basically part of Russia and that he wants Ukraine and Russia to be like parts of one whole together, even if there is a border. I'm guessing he wants it to be a situation like they have in Belarus. By the way, there are Belarusian forces also attacking Ukraine. So the thinking now is that he's going to try to install a friendly government, but I, I don't see how they do that without occupying the country. So Ukraine has fought very hard to be a democracy a few times in the last 20 years. And one theory about this, and I'm channeling Ann Applebaum, is that Putin is just trying to show that um, that that's a failure and that in this place close to Russia, he can prevent that from happening and that it's a pro-authoritarian move for power that is really about shaking his fist um, in the face of democracy. And that suggests that the kind of friendly puppet government you're talking about seems totally plausible. This is all so just shocking to me. And maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. And one thing I just keep thinking about is like, we have this post-World War II order in which there are many countries in the European region that don't have strong militaries of their own. And we've relied on NATO and this kind of, you know, post-Cold War understanding with Russia to assume that there isn't going to be unprovoked aggression. But now that is clearly no longer holds. And I mean, there was a preview of this when Russia invaded Crimea. I realized that. But this just seems like it's on a totally different scale. And I wonder what you think the world can do, the kind of NATO alliance can do. I wonder if you think that the sanctions that Europe and the United States and other countries are have already imposed and now are proposing to up, if they're really going to be an adequate response. I, it feels like even though I want it to seem immediate enough that it's just, it feels less tangible. And so I, I just question that right now. Yeah. So the first part of your question, I, I would disagree on the premise. I think it doesn't help Ukraine, Ukraine's case in Putin's eyes that it's a democracy, although it's, you know, a very troubled one. It's a very corrupt country. There's a lot of political infighting, backbiting. It's not the world's most functional democracy, but that's not a reason for, for them to be invaded. I think you're right in mentioning the post-World War II order. Putin referred to that in his speech, and he has talked about it before. It's about the post-World War II order and the post-Cold War order, and he wants to go back to the former. He is not satisfied with the latter. And he referred last night or this morning to um, to Yalta, February 1945, when FDR, Churchill, and Stalin carved up Europe into different spheres of influence. And Europe basically stayed that way until 1989. And after that point, after 1989, 1991, the liberal Western-led order was declared to be the, the victor that market liberal market capitalism was the only way to do business. Uh, liberal democracy was the only way to govern a country. And, you know, it was this triumphalist moment. And Russia, I think, felt humiliated and sidelined. It's a very kind of Germany post-Versailles moment for them. And Putin has been talking about this for the entire time he's been in office, that he wants to go back to the Cold War. We see the Cold War as a bad thing. We were glad that it that it ended. But he wants to get back there. He wants there to be a world in which 
Moscow and Washington are calling the shots and fighting each other and counterbalancing each other. He wants to go back to that post-World War II, Cold War order. I think the democracy piece of it is is kind of secondary. I don't think he believes that democracies are democracies anyway. I think he believes, and he said as much, and people around him have, have said as much, he doesn't believe it's a real democracy. He believes it's just a puppet of the U.S., and now he wants to install his own his own puppet. Julia, how much does, you've written about this, how much does history and Russia's history play into both how it perceives Ukraine and how it perceives Western influence? History and the way Putin perceives it plays into it. His idea of the Cold War is not a historically accurate one. But it doesn't matter because that's not what history is there for. History is there to be used as a political cudgel. Um, And he'll become fascinated with one Russian historical figure so back when we saw the Medvedev era and Putin trying to engage with the West and opening toward the West, he was he really elevated this 19th century, early 20th century prime minister who was all about reforming this moribund empire. Now he's all about Alexander the Third. That's who, not that's bad. Yeah. That's no. See, I love that you know. No, that. no, no. I'm, I'm like Alexander the Second, maybe yeah. Alexander the Third. No. I need to be clued in on why that is an important distinction. Um, I wrote my thesis on uh, Stalingrad. Before then, I spent a lot of time thinking about Tsarist Russia and how it did tend to swing between like reformer, anti-reformer, reformer, anti-reformer. Alexander the Second was a czar who uh, ended serfdom. He was assassinated by a bomb. Alexander III uh, saw his father die in bed. And his response was that, obviously, this is the fault of reform. Reform is bad. Never do anything to help anyone. And, um, yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't go well. That's kind of what Putin, or like, he went from Stalipin the reformer to Alexander III. And I, I think that was very much the lesson he learned, too. He started opening things up. He was experimenting with reform. And then a bunch of urban white-collar professionals came out and protested and said he should resign. And he was like, fuck that. Fuck reform. Julia. I'm going hardcore. I want to go back to the second half of Emily's question because there is this sense that we're, you know, we the, the way war is um, experienced by us is, is as television right now. I mean, it's pretty clear the United States is not going to send troops to Ukraine. We're not going to fight in Ukraine for for on the side of Ukraine. So what do you make of the various Western and American options for punishing Putin and Russia? And what what feels like it might be effective? What feels like it might be pointless? How powerful can we get? The sanctions that the West has been talking about implementing they will hurt the Russian people. They might hurt people close to Putin. But, you know, unless they decide to choke him and, you know, like and suffocate him in his bunker, which maybe they will, um, most of them are going to go down with the ship. And they understand that their fate is tied to Putin. They understood that in 2014 when the first really hard sanctions hit and they lost access to their European funds and their European homes. And they had to re-register everything to their kids and wives instead of to themselves because the U.S. was um, didn't want to go after family members, which this time we did. A consensus formed in Moscow, especially during the Trump administration, where they decided, you know what, 
they're going to sanction us anyway. You know, the population will bear the brunt of it. And that's kind of their job. Julia, what do you make of the Republican response to so clearly go after President Biden as opposed to laying this at the feet of Putin? I've been struck by how aggressive that tactic has been and surprised by it. Yeah, I see it as a product of two things. I think, first of all, it is, you know, the team sports nature of our politics today, which is you have to attack the guy in charge, you know, the team captain of the other team, uh, even if he's getting creamed by Putin. Um, And they expect Democrats to do the same. The other, I think, deeper reason is that there has been an affinity between the American right and Putin and the Russian right wing for a long time, for well over a decade. Organizations like the World Congress of Families helped the Russian government write their anti-gay propaganda law. Other conservative um, American organizations have been helping right-wing organizations in Russia and helping the church in Russia push to ban and limit abortion, even though it's been legal there since 1920 and it's just not an issue. There's an affinity there also because, you know, in their mind, Russia is a white Christian traditional culture. You know, it's interesting in Putin's speech about the invasion, he was talking about how this was also a reaction to the West trying to impose its values on Russia, which he said are not only alien to Russia, but alien to human nature, and that they lead to a depopulation and a dying out of the human race. So it's very clear that he was talking about what in Russia is seen as like this, um, they think of it as like, no, there are only two genders, and a man is a man, and a woman is a woman, and this is all, you know, these, this is all crazy. Um, So it's interesting that as he's announcing the invasion of a neighboring country, he's also talking about, you know, pushing back against Western ideas about gender fluidity. And I think that's something that really aligns with the American right. Um, Even if Russia is not white, even if it's not only Christian, it doesn't matter. He plays it up. They love it. And they've loved each other for a very long time. And I think the third thing is they turned pro-Russian after Trump, right? They saw that Putin helped their guy win. Their guy likes Putin. Putin liked their guy. So we're going to like Russia. Julia Yaffe is the Washington correspondent for Puck News. Julia, thanks so much for talking to us on what is a really busy, sad day for you, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on this show, other Slate podcasts. If you go to slate.com slash plus, you can become a member today. And we have a great segment. Emily and I are going to talk about our heroes, pegged to the death of Paul Farmer, the, the extremely heroic doctor and global health pioneer. We're going to talk about who our heroes are, what makes someone a hero, have we met them. Uh, so go to slate.com slash plus, become a member today, get bonus segments on the GabFest, as well as ad-free podcasts and member-exclusive episodes on other podcasts at Slate and unlimited reading on the Slate site. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. 
Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We have talked on the GABFEST about the extraordinary rise in conservative legal maneuvers targeted at gay and trans people. But every week, another outrage. Conservative state lawmakers have filed more than 170 anti-LGBTQ bills this year alone, according to one organization. And this week, we had... Like example after example, notably, Emily, the Texas governor and attorney general have teamed up to propose that child abuse charges be brought for anyone providing or suggesting or providing medical treatment, affirming the gender identity of a trans child. Uh, There's also a flotilla of other legislation targeting trans kids, especially laws barring them from playing sports, which I can't even, it gets me so, I want to talk about that. It gets me so worked up. There's a law in Utah to set up a commission that would examine every trans child who wants to play sports. Emily, what is happening? I mean, you want to start with the Texas case, but the Texas law, Texas move, whatever the hell it is. Texas maneuvering. Yeah. I mean, I find this move that Ken Paxton, the attorney general and Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas have made to be one of the most cynical and cruel acts of executive power I can think of in a long time. I mean, what has happened is that the attorney general declared that medical treatments for transgender and gender diverse youth under the age of 18 were child abuse under the state's child abuse statutes. So, you know, this is not previously been how the statutes have been interpreted. We're talking about puberty blockers and gender affirming hormone therapy, and in some cases, surgery, all with parental consent for people under 18. And, you know, major medical organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, back these procedures in cases where they are called for. And, I mean, David, you and I both know well young people who are benefiting from treatments like this. There are lots of questions about the long-term health effects. There is a legitimate debate or more discussion to have about what kinds of standards and procedures kids should go through in terms of psychological assessments before they receive them. But the idea of banning them outright is cruel and will hurt these kids. And this maneuver is actually even worse because what Governor Abbott said was that everyone who is mandated to report child abuse, including, you know, people like teachers, are supposed to be reporting if they know that kids are receiving this kind of care. And that is turning citizens of Texas against each other. It's very reminiscent of SB8, the abortion law that Texas passed that has bounty hunting in it. 
it and uses private enforcement to enforce a six-week ban on abortions. And the idea that you can rewrite the law in this way that directly affects kids and young people uh, without a thought to how this is really going to impact them. I don't even know if the governor and the attorney general think this is enforceable. I think they're just using these kids as political pawns. And I've been talking to parents in Texas this week, and that is exactly how they feel about it. Yeah. And I think we've seen that, like, even people within the Republican Party in Texas are aware that it is likely not enforceable, um, especially seen in urban areas, because we saw the same thing with Florida's um, the so-called don't say gay bill. And we see this across the board in these types of legislation is that all this legislation is so vague as to be almost uninterpretable. Let's let's be clear here that it is not just gender affirming care. It's what could be perceived as gender affirming care. If you believe it to be, we, you, know, you don't need to have evidence. I think that that's the other, you know, you saw that in SB8 where you were basically asking other citizens and state required reporters to get, you know, the foster care system involved, to get the child protective services involved. And let, let's keep in, keep in mind that Texas's Child Protective Services Agency does not have a great track run on dealing with actual child abuse. So getting the state involved here, I'm not sure who would benefit from this because it's not the children and it's not families. I think that there's this idea that everyone is cis and straight until they aren't, until something happens. You know, you wouldn't be trans if we just got in the way of this, if we just let the state get involved, which, you know, all of history looks and says... No. Uh, jumping off of what you were just saying, Jane, I do think the the there is this theme with the with the Florida Don't Say Gay bill, with the Texas abortion bill, with this new move by Abbott and and Paxton around trans kids, around the bill in I think Iowa to put cameras in the classroom to watch how teachers. It's to make the expert class teachers, doctors professionals feel uncertainty because when you feel uncertainty you just won't do it it doesn't you don't even have to you don't even have to enforce these laws directly you don't actually have to do it you if you just make people feel like i'm going to lose my license i'm going to lose my profession i'm going to be drummed out of the medical profession it's a very effective way to control behavior without actually having to literally the the vagueness is the point the in fact the vagueness of that florida law is exactly the point because it's so vague, everyone is going to live in fear of it. And that, um, as we've seen with with abortion in Texas, that just causes people to draw back and not take the risk because it's the costs are too high if you take the risk and the state decides that you're the one they want to target. That's exactly right. I mean, unless and until a judge enjoins enforcement of this order from the attorney general and the governor, it's going to be really hard for endocrinologists and other doctors to provide these treatments because, like, you could be accused of child abuse. I mean, that's that's a very difficult position to be putting professionals into. And it's the very similar, except with this, you know, civil bounty hunting um, to the kind of position that abortion providers are in in Texas as well. Jane, why do you think it is that this trans, the trans kid issue is so is of so much importance on the right these days it is so it is so important uh politically as a culture issue and yet it is such a like it's such a negligible it affects a small number of people who are living their own private 
lives and their own families? After Obergefell, I think that there were a host of people who essentially gave up outwardly attempting to roll back marriage equality. Part of the success of the marriage equality campaign, a success that took decades, was in part people coming out and being out and talking about how, like, I am like you. I think that this particular issue has become one where it's about parental rights. However, whose parental rights, as we're seeing in Texas, it's a little amorphous as to who gets to have the right to parent and who does not. I actually feel optimistic about this, in part because of the kinds of hearts and minds campaigns you're talking about, because I think there are going to be more transgender people and kids among cisgender folks, and that that is going to have an effect over time. It's a smaller population than the LGB population, but I think it's going to have over time a similar effect, because when you care about someone in this community, it really can change your perspective on it. I just want to briefly sidebar the my intense irritation there are so many of these bills are targeting kids who play sports notably it is it is trans girls who want to play sports in high schools in iowa or arkansas or utah and there's the amount of outrage that somebody could show up and somebody who might be able to swim faster than your kid is going to show up and that what a wrong is being done to all the other girls who are who are not trans who are now having to swim it's just so stupid and ludicrous and it's just the massive overweighting of kids sports in american life especially american high school life it is ridiculous that anyone gives one shit at all about some other kid showing up and swimming who cares like, who cares? Well, wait, a, part of the reason they care too much about sports, if they do, is the way in which high school sports are a pipeline to athletic scholarships. So I totally agree that we overweight them and that these bills are misbegotten. But I just want to have a little bit of, like, understanding of where parents are coming from when they get upset about this. Yeah. Even if it's misplaced, it's based on this larger system. And the system itself is kind of feeding into these. Well, but um, the system is grotesque. Fine. The system is grotesque. I just want to like make it clear that it's the system that's grotesque and the parents are partly responding to the system. One of the most important things that we can do is talking to trans kids and talking to like, trans adults about their own experiences, which are going to differ widely. There are some trans women who are like, hell yeah, I want to compete in sports in this exact way. And there are going to be others who say, there was a woman who wrote for the Times actually talking about how like she was a little concerned about trans women competing in sports. And we don't hear enough from trans men on these issues at all. All right. Before we close this topic, Emily, I just want to hit on the Supreme Court has taken another case. I feel like what I've learned from the Supreme Court recently is that Colorado is filled with nothing but people who are desperately anxious not to provide services to gay weddings. That there are <laughs> There are people who are no. Who, it's not filled. You like they find they, one they, plaintiff. It's actually I'm sure these are unusual cases, and that's part of it. In fact, this particular plaintiff who provides who has who, she wants to start a website service, and she hasn't even refused service to anyone yet. She just like is sort of preemptively suing, which is part of why the idea that the Supreme Court is hearing this case seems kind of bogus. Yeah. So that we have this absurd case that. Uh, so basically, this woman who who has a wants to provide web design services for people who are getting married, and she believes for religious reasons that she should not have to provide services to 
gay couples that seek to get married. Um, and the, what is it? What, I mean, how could we get to a point where the notion that designing a website is some form of artistic speech and that the designer is responsible, that the designer owns the message of the website and we should attribute to the designer that belief and therefore the designer is expressing themselves when they are doing this service for this couple. It's crazy, isn't it? But yet yeah. the Supreme Court is going to, is the Supreme Court going to give it to them? I mean, I don't know why the Supreme Court would take this case if not to rule for this plaintiff, because it just seems like there's really no reason for them to hear the case at all. This case is about a question left over from Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was the case about the baker in Colorado who didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Colorado has an anti-discrimination statute that protects against this kind of discrimination if you open your store to the public, right? Public accommodation law. And I think you're right, David. I mean, it is always hard to draw a clear line between speech and conduct, right? I mean, we all wrestle with that. You can count any kind of speech as conduct, you know, if you start thinking about it. And there are lots of conduct like, I guess, providing a website that can someone can style as speech. But this is really part of this move to make the First Amendment at least in terms of its jurisprudence, so capacious that it goes in all these weird directions and has these effects that, you know, basically, like, allow for discrimination. And you can have a conversation about whether, you know, it's uh, whether every baker and website provider has to provide services for everyone. But that is Colorado's law. And that is also part of how we got rid of race-based discrimination in the 60s was through these kinds of public accommodation rules. So the court is kind of carving out an exception that allows for discrimination against LGBT people, or so this case suggests. An interesting little fight on the left, primarily among economists and in economics Twitter, but also it pops up elsewhere in Paul Krugman's column, for example, about whether President Biden is missing his chance to blame inflation on corporate greed, basically because Democratic economists are too principled. And the theory goes something like this, which is that some progressives, Elizabeth Warren manifesting this, believe that corporations in industries where there's not a lot of competition because of monopoly or oligopoly, like meatpacking, these companies are contributing to inflation by taking advantage of this moment to increase prices more than they need to because they can get away with it. Price and gouging. By price gouging, because it, because everyone expects there to be inflation, because everyone's talked about the supply chain. So you just you raise you actually need to raise your price ten percent, but you raise it eighteen percent because you know like no one's gonna you know everyone's gonna be like oh well it's just the supply chain. And so Elizabeth Warren is saying this, various other progressive economists are saying this, but but the theory is that Biden is not saying this because principal Democratic economists believe that this is bad economics and that, that it would compromise their intellectual integrity. And therefore, the theory is that Democrats need to be more hackish and opportunistic to score points. So Jane, does this does it, I mean this is a little bit insider, but does do, do you feel that 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 there is that there's anything to to the case that Oh, Democrats are being too principled about how they talk about these issues because they they are they're such experts and they want to abide by the rules and and principles of their profession. I feel like this is one of those weird moments that Democrats definitely believe and Republicans are like, absolutely not. We have um, within each party this idea that if that we're everybody's just too nice and that they need to be more, you know, take charge and brutal. I, I think that. 
if you talk to Republicans, they are convinced that Democrats always win and are always on the attack and are always just like doing whatever they can to make their ideas the very pillar of policy. And you see from Democrats being like, we always lose. We will never win. We do not do any of this. And I'm just so interested by that, the the battling interpretations. So I will defend the hack gap to my death in the sense that I think it's actually really important for, I mean, hopefully all experts, but I will say it about Democrats to tell the truth about what they think the implications of a policy is. Now, I have zero dog in the fight over price gouging. Seems to me from reading Paul Krugman that there's like a totally plausible argument that in fact this is going on and the Biden administration should be more aggressive about it. But in general, the idea that people who are academics or, you know, even journalists should be shading what they're talking about or only characterizing things in certain ways because that's better for the agenda of the Democrats. Like, I just am, I really fear that direction because I think it doesn't have any boundaries to it. And it's not the job of, you know, economists, certainly not journalists, to be taking that kind of um, approach. But what what do you think should be done, Emily, about the asymmetry in expertise in subjects like healthcare and economics and public health, where you have all the experts are basically on the left? There are no it's you, it's almost impossible to find conservative economists or conservative health policy people or conservative education policy people. There are really? almost none I don't of think them. That's no, I feel, true I, at all. Yeah, I feel like they are few. endemic in my life. Yeah, I get emails I, from I them all no the time. I have no problem calling any of those people up on the phone. Make a few right. phone calls. Okay. You can find so, those somewhere, people. <laughs> somewhere someone at the Hoover Institute is just outraged. <laughs> okay. All right. You just Fine. haven't hung out enough at Heritage lately, David, and Cato and the American Enterprise okay. Institute, right. yeah. et cetera, okay. et cetera, all et right. cetera. But, well, all right. Different question then. So, uh, Emily, you're, you're a legal person, and I feel like on the left for years there's been – there, there's this – they have not treated the war for the courts as a fight for power. They've treated it as an intellectual argument. We have to talk about our principles and look, the conservatives are not living by their principles and they've, they violated it here and there and haven't focused on the, that the goal was apparently to win control of court seat by seat by seat. And so the left has won all the academic arguments. They have the higher rated judges uh, according to the ABA and they have lost, they've utterly lost the war. Yeah. I mean, I, so I to me, it depends who the we is. I mean, there are advocacy groups whose job it is to make this argument, to raise money, to advertise, to take this to the American public. It should also be the jobs of politicians, of Democratic politicians, to make these arguments. I am all for those people having the best possible strategists and staff and ideas. And, you know, that's supposed to be how our politics work. What I'm uh, not in favor of is academics or journalists or other people whose job it is to kind of assess from some kind of critical distance, starting to shade what they're saying in order to further a political agenda. I mean, there's some academics who do take on that role and uh, like make their peace with it. And that's like an individual choice. But in general, I just want to think you can, (laughs) if you have the better argument, win the war of ideas. And in some ways, it's really naive. I mean, I've written about problems of disinformation that suggest that that's very hard to do. 
And I sometimes fail about my own work, which, you know, includes like long explanatory pieces about exactly what conservatives are trying to do on the Supreme Court. I don't know if it moves the needle or not, but I feel like there is a way in which you have to stay an honest broker. And it's one of the things I like about covering law because there's some framework. It's not just like my personal preferences. There are supposed to be rules and past precedents and all this encumbrance of legal obligation and, um, and yeah, just rules that govern how things develop. Let us go to cocktail chatter. All right, I'm going to do my chatter first for no particular reason other than that, that uh, Jane is new and Emily isn't, uh, isn't feeling it just yet, so I'm going to do mine. I have three chatters. First, there are two great new jobs at CityCast working with me. One is we need someone to be our content director to help supervise a bunch of CityCast cities. Another, we need a director of newsletter strategy. Uh, they're both big jobs within CityCast. We're growing fast. Super fun place. Check it out at citycast.fm slash jobs. Second, very quickly, a lot of GabFest listeners have joined me on my Fort DeRussi tour in Washington, D.C., which I take on weekends to this old Civil War fort. And it's been sold out for months, but I just opened up a few new tours this spring and summer. So check it out if you were shut out. But my main chatter is I just went to South Florida, and I want to tell you about my very, very, very South Florida 24-hour period that I had. I felt like I couldn't possibly have a more Florida-ish experience. So we'll start Friday night dinner at a nice restaurant in Jupiter, Florida. I was walking into the bathroom at the restaurant, had to maneuver and kind of make eye contact with the man coming out. I realized that man is Donald Trump Jr. And then I get back to my table and realize that sitting, in fact, at the next table over is Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle, his, I don't know how to describe her, his foxish girlfriend and a bunch of kids. So that was first experience. Next morning, driving down to Miami, my girlfriend points out a hill, the highest natural feature in the landscape. I look it up. It is the highest point in South Florida. It turns out that it is a garbage dump known as Mount Trashmore. It is the highest point in South Florida is, in fact, a landfill garbage dump. So that was I felt that was also a very Florida experience. And then we're Saturday evening. We're back at dinner in Jupiter at a strip mall, just some random strip mall, and my girlfriend points out that this is a strip mall that used to have Orchids of Asia Day Spa, which is where Patriots owner Robert Kraft was busted for soliciting prostitution. So I felt like in 24 hours, I had just like had a tour of the sordid, the seamy, the worst of Florida. But then I had such a great time in Florida, which is so sunny and wonderful. But it was it was just funny to to have craft craft and prostitution and Trump Jr. and Mount Trashmore all at once. Okay, so here is my chatter. There is just an amazing story about Clarence and Ginny Thomas in the New York Times Magazine this week by Danny Hakeem and Joe Becker. And it's called The Long Crusade of Clarence and Ginny Thomas. And it just really winds through their whole careers and shows the degree to which their the activism of Ginny Thomas has been intertwined with various decisions that Clarence Thomas has made, not in some like direct corrupt way, but just a lot of appearance of impropriety and and just people who are like very much on the same page and really uh, helping each other do their work. And there's just this amazing quote from Jenny Thomas from 2018 at this off the record session of this secretive conservative group that she runs called the Council for National Policy. 
And she talks about seeing rainbow flags in businesses and how that sends a message that other people are kind and decent and compassionate and the Republicans are evil conservatives. And she even complains about things like posters at her vet about spreading a message of spread kindness and build community. So there's just this real alienation, I think, from what seems to me to be quite mainstream American culture. Anyway, I really recommend this piece. There's another piece about Jenny Thomas by Jane Mayer recently in The New Yorker. So you can just really immerse yourself in the political activism of Jenny Thomas. Jane, what is your chatter? I, I want to send a special tribute to the only good part of life right now at a time when we are facing another European war and so much horrible legislation is happening. I love sports Twitter. Sports Twitter is the nice place. Sports Twitter is a place where people are currently kind of upset because uh, Max Scherzer showed up to the MLB winter meeting in a Porsche and then people got mad and then people got mad at the people who got mad. And then maybe LeBron said something. Maybe LeBron didn't say something. Maybe he Instagrammed something. What is Aaron Rodgers doing? Aaron Rodgers just went on a clarified butter cleanse. Aaron Rodgers (laughs) is very sorry to Shailene Woodley. Is Aaron Rodgers coming back to the Packers? I love sports Twitter. It's important, but it's not. I love it. It's the greatest place on earth. Thank you, sports Twitter. Why is Max Scherzer not supposed to be in a Porsche? He's a rich dude. Wait, okay. who's Max Scherzer? What is he's this? A pitcher, ex, oh. He's a pitcher. He's a pitcher who was. Thanks. Yeah. Right now, there is a lockout of Major League Baseball, and the owners are being assholes. And the Major League Baseball has the worst commissioner in all of sports, and that is really saying something, because every major sports commissioner is a bad person. So the AP, when they reported on him showing up to these meetings that they're having, attempting to broker a deal... They noted that Max Scherzer showed up um, and like a Porsche, which is fine, especially because the MLB owners are all crazy wealthy. Um, I believe the owner of the Mets has a giant shark frozen in um, formaldehyde and it costs $8 million. Wait, what? So again, (laughs) this is why I'm like. It's a Damien. It's like probably like a Damien Hirst. Oh, right. Yeah, there is Damien Hirst. That's right. I could talk about this all day. But yeah, it, it apparently there's this whole effort by Major League Baseball to make it seem like all of the players are just being, I don't know, like benighted full of themselves people, but it, it's not working. And also, again, it doesn't matter. It's not war. It's not death. Oh, it's the best. Listeners, thank you for sending us so many chatters. You sent a raft of good ones this week to Gabfest at slate.com by email. You also tweeted them to us at, at slategabfest. Please keep them coming. Something you're chattering about with your friends and loved ones. Our listener chatter this week is from Charles Hunt, and it's about a story in the Washington Post. This is Charlie coming to you from Boise, Idaho. My chatter this week is about owl vomit. My interest spiked upon coming across Twitter user at Muna Myers musing earlier this week. Did everyone have to cut up an owl hairball that had a mouse skeleton in it during elementary school, she asked, or am I just making this up? Muna was not making this up, as I vividly remember just such a hairball during my elementary school days in the mid to late 90s. Muna followed up with a Washington Post article from August of 2020 by Christopher Ingram entitled, The Owl Pellet Economy, Meet the Entrepreneurs Who Have Devoted Their Lives to Bird Vomit. Owls, as even the less ornithologically inclined among us probably know, hunt and eat mice. Approximately 12 hours after devouring it, the owl will regurgitate a little clump of fur and bones known as an owl pellet. 
but owls' weak digestive systems and tendency to swallow prey whole typically allow these skeletons to be expelled virtually intact. As a result, each of these pellets contains a near-perfect skeleton of the devoured rodent and a treasure trove of data for researchers providing insights on the owl, its prey, and the environment in which it lives. The result is tens of thousands of owl pellets shipped across the country each year for everyone from fifth graders to PhD students to analyze, take apart, and put back together. That was an amazing chatter. The most amazing part to me, I will confess, is that there's someone who is already a real adult and they went to elementary school in the late 90s. It's like, how could people be going to elementary school in the late 90s? Yeah. Hmm. We have to get our mind around that. We were already old we in the late old. 90s. We were old. It's true. It's oh, not, my God. It's not fair. How depressing. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced this week by Jocelyn Frank and every week by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGapFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Jane Koston, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, it's just going to be me and Emily on Slate Plus today. Uh, Jane wasn't able to make it for the segment. So, Emily, Paul Farmer died this week at the unfairly, cruelly young age of 62. He's a true hero of the world, a hero of global, global health, brave, self-sacrificing, humane person who really gave his life in a way that very few people do to make people healthier and live longer and live better in some of the poorest and most troubled places in the world. Mm. He's a hero, but hero by any measure. That If you want to talk about who is a hero, Paul Farmer is a hero. So talk about who our heroes are, what it was like. Have you ever met them? Was it disappointing to meet them? Um, what to do, what, you know, how to, how to think about people who are heroic. Um, so first of all, did you, is, if you want to say anything about Paul Farmer. I mean, I think you did a really good job. And I think what, um, you know, there are lots of people, or I hope there are lots of people who are f- unsung, who are doing work like this. I mean, it really involves going somewhere where people are just like, really in need and figuring out some way to help them in a way that means that your life is um, really enmeshed with theirs. Do you feel like you can easily identify people who are alive, who are heroes? Because I feel sort of skittish about that. It's so interesting. I was trying to do this uh, and, you know, I did it as a mental exercise and realized a little bit, a little bit, I was able to do it, but it is, it is hard. I, so for me, for a long time, it was very easy when I was asked who, or I wouldn't ask myself, who, who do I think is the most heroic or greatest American? I, I did think it was John Lewis. I always felt like John Lewis and his, he, in every aspect of his life and how he had lived and I'd read enough about his role in the movement to kind of feel like, oh, this is a person who, who is heroic in all the ways that someone can be heroic and has given his life in this, in service in a way that was noble. John Lewis, of course, is dead sadly. Um, so I guess I don't have somebody who's, but I, but there are people who, there are people who still who fit that way. What about you? Do you, can you think of anyone who's heroic who's alive? Well, the person I was going to say who is a hero who I've met was John Lewis, because he spoke at this breakfast. I was, uh, reporting on Kamala Hara for the Times Magazine. This is when she was running for Senate in California. And I didn't have like a great reason I needed to talk to him. But honestly, I just wanted to meet him because he's a hero, although I felt sort of badly wasting his time with that. 
And I have trouble coming up with other people who are alive because I'm just worried they're going to disappoint in some way, which will then come back to bite me. But um, or I mean, who cares? But uh, yeah, there's this way in which we know that people are flawed. People are supposed to be flawed. And I think I'm. That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash plus and become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 